Hello, everyone, and welcome to session two of the Sabbath practice. Whether your first week was a raging success and the highlight of your week, or a complete disaster, it's all part of the process, and we're praying that God would do a healing work in your soul. In session one, John Mark said there are four meanings of the Hebrew word Shabbat or Sabbath that function like four movements of the Sabbath day. They are to stop, rest, delight, and worship. Last time we covered stop, and that's what you did on your first Sabbath. You stopped. But up on the docket for today is rest. Yeah, but first, one of the convictions of practicing the way is that information alone does not produce transformation. We need to practice the way of Jesus to get Jesus' teaching from our minds to our bodies, our muscle memory, for it to become second nature. But practice alone is not enough. We need to practice in community. And then we need to reflect together on our practice as a community. As we explored in the last session, we don't change from experience. We change when we reflect on our experience. As you know, we designed a guide to be a companion for you on this four-week journey, a place to further reflect. We hope it's been a useful resource for you this last week. So go ahead and pull that out and open your Sabbath reflection. To begin, we're going to break into triads, groups of three or so people, and share from your Sabbath reflection about your experience as much as you feel comfortable. Here's three questions to guide your conversation. Number one, where did you feel resistance in your Sabbath practice? Internally and externally, was it phone calls or an unfinished task in the back of your mind? Number two, where did you feel delight? Where did your soul come alive? And number three, where did you most experience God's nearness? Take a few minutes to reflect together before the teaching. The spiritual journey begins with desire, wanting to follow Jesus and be transformed into a new kind of person. Desire is like the engine of our life. It's the drive to get out of bed in the morning and live. But when you pay close attention to the inner dynamics of the heart, you realize desire is one of those things that is never, ever satisfied. A thousand years before Christ, the writer of Ecclesiastes said, the eye is not satisfied with seeing. A more recent philosopher just said, I can't get no satisfaction. No matter how much we get, it's never enough. Thomas Aquinas, that towering medieval intellectual, once asked the question, what would it take to satisfy human desire? The answer he came up with was everything. We would have to experience everything and everyone and be experienced by everything and everyone to feel satisfied. We would have to be infinite, but we're not. We're finite. So all of us live with chronically unsatisfied desires. The word used by the writers of the Bible to name this inner disquiet of the heart is restlessness. 
This is an ancient problem rooted in human nature, but it's been manipulated by the culture of consumerism in the West, and in particular by advertising, which is basically an attempt to monetize our restlessness. We see upwards of 4,000 ads per day, all of it intentionally designed to leave you and I feeling unsatisfied. And it works. We fall for the old carrot-on-the-stick routine, chasing more money, more clothes, more things, more square feet, more experiences, more stamps on our passport, more relationships, more, more, more. But it's never, ever enough. Rest is always just out of reach. In the East, they call this the wheel of suffering, which isn't really a religious idea as much as it's a wise insight into the human condition. The wheel of suffering is craving and aversion. Craving is a chasing after what you desire, what you want. And aversion is a running away from what you don't want, what you fear or whatever is causing you pain. The result of that wheel is suffering because the moment we catch what it is we're chasing, if we catch it, we immediately want 10 new things. And the moment we solve one problem, if we can solve it, it's like a game of whack-a-mole. A new one pops right up to take its place. Is there a way off the hamster wheel of craving and aversion, chasing after our desires and running away from our fears? Or in more biblical language, Is there a way to fight against the cancerous restlessness of the human heart and the age to which we belong? Yes, Sabbath. Sabbath is a practice from the way of Jesus by which we war against the restlessness of our age and instead take on the easy yoke of Jesus, our rabbi, and find rest for our souls. As we said in the previous session, there are four movements to the Sabbath. Stop, rest, delight, and worship. On the docket for this week is rest. If you have your Bible, one more time, turn to Genesis chapter 2 and read with me from verse 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested or he sabbathed from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, when I hear the word rest, I think of sleep or maybe a little margin or a day off or just a few hours to relax. But the idea behind this verb Shabbat in Hebrew is far more It's holistic rest, or what Jesus called rest for your souls, for your whole person. On the Sabbath, we rest from work, all work, not just paid work, not just our jobs, but all work, including our chores and our errands and our to-do lists. We rest from working, but it's actually more than that. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, in his magisterial book, The Sabbath, says we rest not just from work, but from even thinking about work. Neuroscientists tell us that when we think about work, even if we are at home on the couch, it secretes the same stress chemicals in our brain as if we were at the office or on the job site or in the actual situation. We rest from even the thought of working, but it's still more. 
We rest from wanting and worrying. We get off the wheel of suffering. I want this. I don't want that. We delight in God and we come to rest. To unpack this idea, let me kind of Bible nerd out on you for just a few more minutes. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 5. You may or may not know the Ten Commandments are recorded twice in the Torah, the Hebrew word for the books of Moses. The first is in Exodus chapter 20, where Israel is at the foot of Mount Sinai right after leaving Egypt. The second is in Deuteronomy 5 on the edge of the Jordan River right before Israel is entering the promised land. There are 40 years in between which means Deuteronomy 5 is to the next generation who were not there, who were unborn or still babies at Mount Sinai. And the Sabbath command is similar, but it's a little bit different. Read with me from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. As the Lord your God has commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm." Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Now, there are two differences between the Sabbath command in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5. The first is minor. In Exodus, it's remember the Sabbath, but here in Deuteronomy, it's observe the Sabbath. Remember and observe. The Hebrew word is shamar, and it means to keep watch over or to guard like a sentry. Think of how we observe a holiday or a holy day, such as Christmas or Easter. We guard it. We kind of watch over it to make it special and unique. That's the idea. Sabbath is like a weekly holiday. We are to keep watch over it, lest it become just another ordinary day on the weekend. This is why in the Kiddush, which is the ancient Jewish liturgy that you begin the Sabbath with, You light not one, but two candles to symbolize the two commands, remember and observe. That's change number one. The rest of the command is verbatim until the end where there is a major change. In Exodus, it's for in six days, Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, he blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. But in Deuteronomy, it's remember that you were slaves in Egypt, but the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Same command, but a whole different rationale behind the command. In Exodus, the rationale is grounded in the story of creation, for in six days God created the heavens and the earth. Here in Deuteronomy, it's grounded in the story of liberation. You were, past tense, slaves in Egypt, but you're not slaves anymore. At Sinai, Sabbath is about the rhythm. In Deuteronomy, it's about the resistance. The last session was all about rhythm. This session is all about resistance. Give me a few more minutes to lay it out. In the Exodus story, there's all sorts of language about restlessness. For example, here's a few quotes from Exodus chapter 5. 
Why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Make the work harder so they keep working. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That's why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. In the story, Pharaoh is a cruel tyrant. No matter how hard the Hebrews work, it was never enough. They lived under the oppressive yoke of the daily quota. More, more, more. And it wasn't just Pharaoh. It was the socioeconomic system of Egypt as a whole. Israel was making bricks to build, quote, supply cities, end quote. Entire cities just to store all of Pharaoh's extra stuff. And it was an economic system built on the back of slavery. To get to the lavish, opulent lifestyle of a pharaoh or an Egypt, you need cheap labor to work while you rest. And slaves don't get a Sabbath, a day of rest. Slaves in an empire like that are subhuman, a commodity to buy and sell. They only have value in what they produce. They work all day, every day until they die. Rest in the story is a byproduct of the salvation and deliverance of God. So the command is to remember you're not a slave anymore. You're in a new kingdom under a new king. You're not in Egypt. There's no daily quota, no taskmaster over your head. And this is key. Remember Deuteronomy 5 was to the next generation. Remember to never become a slave driver yourself. Hence the command about your male and female servants, the foreigner, even your animals, all are equal under the Sabbath, all rest on the seventh day. The theologian A.J. Swoboda calls the Sabbath scheduled social justice. And we need this practice now more than ever before because Pharaoh and Egypt are both alive and well. In the literary design of the Bible, Egypt is an archetype similar to Babylon later on. It was a real historic nation state, an empire, but it's symbolic of all empires down through time and all across the world. And while we are not ancient Hebrews living in Egypt, you're a Kiwi living in Auckland or a Canadian living in Vancouver or an American living in Portland, Oregon, still we live in a modern day Egypt in a culture of restlessness, a culture of unchecked desire for more. In the West, we work more than ever before. The Japanese have a word, kuroshi, that literally means death by overwork. But we Americans work 137 more hours per year than the Japanese, 260 more hours per year than you Brits, and 499 more hours per year on average than the French. God bless you French. In my home country of the U.S., we work more than any other nation in the world. Now, as a general rule, this is more true of older generations than younger. In fact, to be honest, many young adults have the opposite problem. For them, it's often not too much work, but too much play. But as a culture, we work or play more than ever before. And we have more than ever before. Conservative estimates say we now spend two to three times more on goods and services than our ancestors did in 1945. Our homes are three times larger and full of twice as many things. The average home in my country, not rich, average, has over 300,000 items in it. 
Here in the U.S., we don't have supply cities, but there are 2.3 billion square feet of self-storage space, something like 7.3 square feet for every person in our nation. Meanwhile, many people all around us, hiding in plain sight, possibly some around you right now, are barely able to make rent and put food on the table. But in spite of that, we're unhappier than ever before. Sociologists tell us that the happiness levels in the West hit a peak in the 1950s and have been in a steady decline ever since. Interesting, that's right around when the blue laws in my country and other countries were phased out and the Lord's Day or the Sabbath was secularized into the weekend. To sum up, we work more than ever before, we have more than ever before, and we're still not happy. It's Egypt all over again. And it's so easy to just get sucked into the culture, to feel like you just have to work those extra hours to get ahead, like you have to reach a certain standard of living, you have to own this or that, you have to participate in this or that. It's so easy just to say, well, that's just how it is. But it doesn't have to be this way. Listen carefully. Rest is an act of resistance. It is an act of defiance against Pharaoh and his empire. It is a way of saying with your whole life, enough, enough work. Work is a good thing, but it's not the thing. Enough stuff. Stuff isn't bad, but most of us have more than enough. Sabbath rest is a way to break our addiction to the twin gods in the West, accomplishment and accumulation. Later in the Old Testament, there are Sabbath commands against buying or selling, against all commerce on the Sabbath. That's where blue laws came from. In our family, we've chosen to follow this ancient wisdom. On the Sabbath, we don't shop or do anything that would make us want more, like read a magazine or dink around online. We don't even talk about what we want more of. We just be and practice gratitude for what we have, and we enjoy the goodness of God in our actual life. This can be hard to do. We have three teenagers right now that I'm raising, and I watch our culture attempt to monetize their restlessness just like it does to me, constantly. But every week, the Sabbath is our line in the sand as a family enough. My point is, accomplishment and accumulation aren't evil. They can even be good to a limit. At some point, you need a line in the sand to say, this far you shall go and no farther. I do not need to work more hours. I do not need to make more money or move up in the company. I do not need a new car. I do not need the perfect grade or the perfect body or the perfect yard or the perfect whatever. I do not need to earn my human father's approval. I already have it from my heavenly father. Sabbath is a weekly reminder. You're not a slave anymore. Pharaoh and his army are at the bottom of the Red Sea. You are free. You have all you need to thrive with God and his world. You are in a new kingdom now with a new king. You are loved just as you are with all of your humanity. You don't have to produce or perform or purchase your way into love. You don't need more things or more experiences or more relationships because you have God. You don't need to hold your life together in fear for your future because God is your good shepherd. Of course, this all sounds beautiful, but my point is, Sabbath rest is an act of resistance. It is a declaration of war on all that is anti-Sabbath and anti-the Lord of the Sabbath. 
which means when you practice Sabbath, you are going to feel resistance, both external resistance. The culture all around you is a Sabbath-less, rhythm-less, hollow-out-your-soul-and-suck-you-dry culture. To Sabbath well will require intentionality, preparation, and a resolute determination to go against the flow of the cultural tide, to live differently. This is not easy. You are standing against what the Apostle Paul calls the principalities and powers. The theologian Walter Wink defines the powers in Ephesians as both heavenly and earthly, divine and human, spiritual and political, invisible and visible. They are the meta forces that keep us and others, in particular the oppressed, from Sabbath rest. Things like systemic racism, sexism, greed, political corruption, all these forces are animated by dark spiritual powers that are anti-Sabbath and anti-God. Through the practice of Sabbath, we defy these powers and align ourselves with the God of Sabbath, of rest. We resist. But there's also internal resistance. Egypt isn't just around us, it's in us. To Sabbath, to come to rest, we have to resist the internal dynamics of restlessness in our own fallen heart, greed, envy, jealousy, discontentment, anxiety, a controlling spirit, addiction. With all of the practices, and frankly, with God himself, we feel what Ruth Haley Barton calls the push-pull dynamic. There's a tug of war in our chest. We feel a pull toward Jesus and his way. We we feel a genuine desire to be with him and find rest for our soul. But we also feel a bit of a push away from Jesus and his way, a resistance in us or a reluctance to give up our own autonomy and self-will and surrender to him. In the practice of Sabbath, you will feel this push-pull dynamic at work in your own body. But Sabbath rest is your secret weapon in the war against the powers and the principalities of our age. It's an entire day where you say, I have enough and I am enough. In those push-pull moments, when you have to resist both external forces and internal forces that are anti-Sabbath, Remember, you're not a slave anymore. You're free. God is king, but he's nothing like Pharaoh. He is a Sabbath-keeping, Sabbath-commanding God. Jesus called himself the Lord of the Sabbath, and he's offering you rest for your souls. The question is, will you take that rest, and will you resist? Now it's time to have a group conversation about the teaching. Circle up and talk through the following three questions. Number one, where are you most tired? Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. What is the greatest drain on your energies? This may be hard for you to assess because you're so used to being tired, but imagine what your life would feel like if you didn't live under the burden of overactivity. Number two, what is the strongest force of resistance in your life? external or internal, that attempts to keep you from Sabbath rest. 
And number three, what are the hardest things for you to say no to on the Sabbath? Take a few minutes for conversation. My name is Deidre. I'm a mom. I have three young adult children. I'm also a pediatrician, I'm working full-time seeing patients. And for me to be able to Sabbath, and it started with me doing some of my um, to-do list on Friday, and then being very clear with my team that I was signing off email and having a tagline that I won't be responding to emails until Monday morning, um, which at first that was really challenging because a lot of work I realized happened on the weekends. Um, but one of the benefits of me doing that as a leader in the organization is that set an expectation over time. And I think other people actually appropriately were able to step away from work as well. In the United States, we're driven by accomplishment and we're independent. And so to Sabbath, you have to pause, you have to give up what it is that you're accomplishing and say like physically, mentally, spiritually that God, you're enough. And it's not about what I am doing or what I can accomplish. And I don't think that that is an alignment with um, my generation or our culture or our society to pause and to relinquish control um, and to be out of touch for any extended amount of time. I, I think the hardest part for me when I first started was setting aside all the things that I would normally do during that day um, and be focused on not doing. And that is not my personality. Um, and it's I'm a single mom with three kids who works full time. And so there's always something that I should be thinking about or thinking about doing or actually doing. That discipline of saying, I'm gonna step away and I'm not gonna be available um, to work. I'm gonna rest and I'm going to go out in nature. I'm gonna connect with friends. I'm gonna worship and I'm gonna celebrate. To recap, all four sessions of the Sabbath practice build on each other. Last Sabbath, you marked out a time to rest. You chose a beginning and ending ritual, and you gave yourself to a few Sabbath activities. This week, we have three new exercises for you to add in. The first is to prepare for the day. In the New Testament, the day before the Sabbath is called the preparation day. And you really need it, if not a day, a few hours to prep. Sabbath will not just happen. It's too countercultural. If you let the inertia of the day carry you, you will get sucked right back into Egypt's current. So this week's first exercise, which will be easy for some of you and harder for others, is to set aside a little time the night before or afternoon leading up to Sabbath and prep. Here's a few recommendations. Go grocery shopping. Prep your meal for Sabbath. Clean or tidy your home or apartment. Run any errands or pay any bills that needs to be sorted before you can rest. Answer all your texts and emails in order to power off your devices. Make plans to meet your family or community on the Sabbath. Plan some fun activities to play and delight. You can do a little 
or a lot. It's all up to you. Secondly, prepare for external resistance. With this simple exercise, pick one to three cultural forces to say no to on the Sabbath. Phone, social media, the internet, TV and entertainment, shopping, social obligations, sports, weekend work, chores, errands, sadly, even people. Oftentimes, the greatest challenge we face is people, our boss, coworker, family members who attempt to sabotage Sabbath. It can help to plan and prepare for how to lovingly deal with that. It's your choice. Just identify a few areas that are anti-rest and resist. Third, prepare for internal resistance. We've prepared an exercise for you in the guide. Set aside a time on Sabbath to go through the journaling prayer exercise. Ideally, alone in the quiet, but you could also do this with a few close friends. And you invite the Holy Spirit to come and illuminate your mind. Then ask two simple questions. What am I feeling? We have a list of feeling words in the guide for you to pick from. Two, what attachment is under that feeling? Then feel that feeling, even if it's unpleasant, like sadness or boredom or anger or hurt. Don't run from it. Let it roll over you like a wave. Then offer it to God and pray and release it back to Him. Finally, wait for God to speak to you. See if a word or phrase or image or line from Scripture comes to mind as God's word to you. Write it down and go about your day. For those of you doing the REACH exercise, we have more recommended reading for you as well as podcasts. But your REACH exercise is a digital Sabbath where you turn your devices, including your smartphone, off, either for a full 24 hours or at least for a good portion of the day, say from Sabbath meal until noon the following day. As a reminder, please fill out the second practice reflection before you come back together for session three. Again, everything we offer is invitational. We make recommendations, you make decisions. But you can do this. Sabbath rest is an act of resistance, but it's a choice you can make this week. To close, may the God of rest fill you with his presence and peace as you rest in him.